like a two-week vacation. All expense paid, all inclusive kind of time. So not, wouldn't have to worry about any expenses. Crystal clear water on the beach. Teeming with life so that you could even just go snorkeling and look at all the wildlife. Love of my life sitting next to me. My kids are there, but they're playing games on the beach and they're not fighting about anything. (laughs) There's no bickering. They're just having fun together, just as siblings should, right? Like that would feel like joy, right? At least to me. I mean, that would be a, a really good picture of like something that would bring joy to my life. Sounds amazing. Reality is a little more complicated, but, and maybe we all have definitions. If we were to like go somewhere that just, when we think about joy, it's like maybe this mountaintop serene moments where you're looking over just a beautiful landscape, or maybe it's a, a front porch with a, a warm drink and a rocking chair and somebody that you love sitting next to you and watching the sunrise or whatever it may be. We all have different maybe pictures of exactly what that looks like. Sort of moments of joy. And joy is all over the season that we're in, right? Like, I don't know about your collection of Christmas cards that you might have gotten or are hanging up, but the word joy is on a lot of them, right? If you have a little family pictures and this big caption of joy on top or rejoice uh, will be the cursive on top of the, the picture, something along those lines. It's our music, right? We sing things like joy to the world which I'm going to blow your mind a little bit, was not written to be a Christmas song, but it is what we have now. It's a Christmas song. We sing joy. We have ornaments that might say joy on them. It's it's an abundant theme. And with Advent, it's one of the the four big ideas that Advents tend to focus on, the love, joy, peace, and hope. And so today, I want to talk about joy. But for many of us, it maybe feels fleeting, or maybe like a veneer. Maybe the concept of joy feels like even what our culture sometimes uh, feels around things like happiness and joy, that it's a little bit false, right? Like what's, what's classic in many like comedians, many of the famous comedians in the world, is they seem like happy and joyous people, but often there's a real internal struggle inside of them. They're almost like an archetype of our cultural moments. You, you read about the happiest countries in the world. They always put out these studies. Here are the top 10 happiest countries in the world, which are fascinating. And then you line them up with the countries with the highest use of antidepressants. And they're very similar lists. It's like, yes, we're a happy country as long as everyone is medicated. It's like, I don't, I don't know if that's true happiness and true joy. And this season, perhaps your Christmas card, if you've made one, the giant joy letters are betraying a low-grade anxiety that you're feeling, a chronic depression that you're still struggling with, a sadness or loss that you are just walking through, unfulfilled longings that are still just unmet, and you just, you just struggle with joy right now. It feels fleeting. And sometimes as we talk about it within the life of the church and we talk about it with Jesus, the, the, the history of the church hasn't done us a lot of favors either, right? Like, you look at the artwork that the church has put out around Jesus. I don't know if joy and happy is where we naturally think, right? Here are like eight of some of the earliest artworks of Jesus. 
I don't know if I would walk away going, man, Jesus was a really joyful guy, right? He's always very solemn. He's always very reserved. And, and that continued uh, through the artwork, certainly through the medieval ages and everything else. It's pretty rare. Actually, it wasn't until modern times, and it's usually in more of like a farce, like dog bar or something like that. You have happy-go-lucky Jesus. But joy just wouldn't be the description of a lot of pictures, I would imagine, of Jesus. And so it's, it's a question of like where joy fits in. Now hear me. Jesus fully was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I agree with that. And all those pictures, none of them are Jesus being crucified. I, w- I would fully expect Jesus looking in grief on the cross. But at the same time, he was the man who was anointed with gladness. And I don't see that often, both in the church and in pictures of Jesus. He is the one who people are accusing of being a glutton and a drunkard. So you've got to imagine he's with this collection of ragtag people that he's hanging out with and having meals with, that there's something of joy and happiness and celebration that's a part of Jesus's personality or world. Even his first miracle is to show up to a party where they run out of wine, and then he brings what's called the best wine to the party. John Piper describing this, and he's a, he's a big, he, um, one of his big topics is called Christian hedonism. He's big on uh, what it looks like to to really find your greatest joy, your greatest happiness in Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ is the happiest, so we'll talk about why that's not my favorite word, happiest being in the universe. His gladness is greater than all the angelic gladness of heaven. He mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth, which is like the the, the gladness, indomitable mirth of his father. And, And I just don't know if that's always the picture I always have of Jesus. And as we talk about joy today, it's, it's one of the key pieces of Christmas, right? Luke 2, one of the most classic sections of the Christmas story, the, the angels show up to a bunch of shepherds and they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Great joy, mega joy in the Greek, mega for all people. For you and for me, not just the shepherds are going to experience this. The, the news is for all people to have great joy. <laughs> and so, what, what is this about? What is the great joy? Is it the same as happiness or not? What does joy look like as I've walked through the seasons or am walking through the season that I'm in? How is it not like the happy-go-lucky platitudes, the happy face, the, the Ned Flanders, uh, if you're a Simpsons person, the, the high diddly ho neighbor understanding of joy, but, but something deeper. And as we continue through these themes, perhaps today, joy might be the hardest one for you. Maybe it's easy to look at your life and go, Here's, I, I do see love in my life somewhere. I do, I do feel hopeful about certain things, and, and maybe like, I even have these moments of peace in my life. But joy, joy is just lacking right now. And I would assume if I were to take a poll, like, how many of you would describe your life right now as just full of joy? It's going to be very few of us. And it makes me question, all right, well, what are we missing? If this is good news of great joy for all people, what are we missing out on? So let's look at a few Bible verses of how they talk about joy, uh, and then we'll, we'll unpack it as we go. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit through uh, the New Testament letters. 
you're welcome to turn to, um, but uh, as I said, we'll be jumping around kind of quickly. First Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So this is Paul. Paul's um, a man who was originally persecuting the church, encounters Jesus, and just changes his whole life, starts planting churches and um, following Jesus as one of the earliest disciples. And so he's planted churches, and he's writing letters to his churches. And this is one of those letters, actually one of the first ones we think that he wrote. And this church is struggling, it's suffering, it's experiencing all sorts of different kind of forms of persecution. And he says, look, he says that you receive the word in much affliction with joy. So there's afflictions and joy all in together, which makes me go, huh. Or James 1, 2, you have... Um, the letter writer uh, James say, count it all joy, or as some translators say, count it as pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, once again, James particularly is writing to a very struggling church. They have outside probably governmental pressures on them. Uh, they're struggling with finances. They're, they're, they're experiencing a lot of poverty uh, within the church, it seems like. And, 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 and so nothing is going as they expected, Right? The Messiah has come. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And everything has gotten really, really hard. And, and James tells them, consider it pure joy when you meet your trials. Or Hebrews 12. It's coming off this massive chapter where uh, it talks about all the previous people in the faith and some of the good that happened, some of the bad that happened, and yet all, they were all faithful in the midst of it. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is simply saying, all right, what, what does it look like to live this out? What does it look like to finish the race? This is, this is what my hope for you, uh, church, it, 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 that you would finish the race, endure the race. How? By looking to Jesus. All right, what about Jesus? We look to his cross. We look to the one who conquered sin and death, suffered death, uh, the death that we were supposed to suffer. And in doing so, he did it. Why? For the joy. Because there's joy set before it. Jesus is as if he's saying, I'm going to go through the trial, the tribulation, the beating, the mocking, the cross. Allow them to kill me. Why? Because there's joy in it. It's set before me. Paul will say in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, he says this, I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. And this is a letter where Paul is experiencing all of it. This is, this is a letter that we tend to not read a lot, uh, I would argue, in, in America because it's so much about like, the persecution, the struggle that, that Paul experiences. And, and in this letter, he's talking about outside pressures from outside the church. He's talking about the pressures that exist inside the church because there's all these people accusing him of not being a real apostle. Um, he talks about being shipwrecked multiple times, being bit by snakes, just all. He's, he's been through the ringer in this letter. And he says, in all my troubles, my joy knows no bounds. What? In Colossians 1.24, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 
Rejoice in my sufferings, which is just a verb, to, to, to joy, to, to, to go be joy in my sufferings. How, Paul? How does this make sense? Or you take Philippians 4, it's a really famous passage of, of Paul commanding people. It says rejoice, um, to be joy, joy, like verb joy, in the Lord always. And in case you missed it the first time, again I say, rejoice. And in this short little letter, it's only four chapters long, 13 times he says, speaks of joy. Now it's important to know the context because this is a letter Paul writes from a dungeon, from prison, He's chained. He's awaiting a possible death sentence. He's not sure the outcome. He doesn't know when. And he writes this letter. And he writes this letter. He closes the book by essentially saying, I rejoice greatly in the Lord in all the circumstances that are presented to me, in plenty and in want. I don't know what circumstances are coming tomorrow. I don't know whether I'm going to die. I don't know what's going to happen. But here's the thing I want to leave you with, church. Joy, 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 joy. What's this all about? Because joy certainly feels radically different than sometimes the, the happiness we speak from. Like, I almost didn't expect to look up joy and to suddenly get all of those verses. <laughs> like, there's moments where Paul's like, hey, I look forward to seeing you, and when we get together, it'll be so joyful. That I get. But all those verses I just read... One guy is talking about the joy in the midst of persecution and government. One guy talking about joy connected to the cross. One guy talking about the joy in the midst of all the circumstances and trials and suffering. One guy writing from a dungeon saying he's possibly going to see beheading, but joy. Are, are they delusional? Huh. And maybe they understand something about joy that we struggle with, which I think introduces us to, to the first sort of the theme of why biblical joy is just something different. The biblical joy is not a result of where we are in life, but where we are in Christ. Now, where we are in life, the circumstances, all those things are probably more connected with happiness than they are actual joy. Like happiness is where I am in life, of who I'm with, what I'm driving, what, what I call home, what my paycheck is, what my title is, all of those things. And they can make me happy. And happiness isn't a sin. I'm not for, like, we should only live this aesthetic, sad lifestyle. Happiness is a good thing. Nothing wrong with it. But biblical joy is not necessarily connected to where I am in life, but where I am in Christ. Because almost every one of the New Testament writers is writing about joy, but doing so in the midst of circumstances that none of us would choose. And I doubt they were necessarily choosing. I think if Paul had the choice to not be in the dungeon and be in the dungeon, I think his natural inclination would be to choose not to be in the dungeon. That's where he's at. And he's like, I, I have joy here. Because joy is not where he is, but whose he is. And the only way this really works is as if joy is not necessarily the internal thing we try to manufacture, just emotions, but something that has to come from outside of us. And so I would argue that joy is a gift, not a destination. Joy just doesn't fit the equation of saying, I will have more joy when I blank, right? And many of us sit there, when I get him back or her back, when I finally have a him or her, when I no longer have a him or her, <laughs> I'll have joy when I get promoted and have more sales, when I do this, when I move to this, when I finally arrive, whatever it may be. 
A lot of us have that sort of conditional future that we desire. But joy doesn't function with that. It's a gift, not a destination. Happiness can be found that way. And I know plenty of people that are very happy by what they've arrived at in life. Certainly. But how do you sit in a dungeon? We're waiting on your death, and for 13 times you say, yeah, but I have joy. My joy is complete, not lacking. I don't know if um, you ever read sort of famous people's biographies, Um, at least the autobiographies. Before you pick one up, I guarantee you, in it, there will be some part where they're like, I finally achieved the thing I desired, and it didn't satisfy the way I wanted it to. It's like time and time again. You read Will Smith, you read who? It is that. It is, I achieved everything I thought I would, and I still was not satisfied. It still was joy. It was still fleeting. And on the contrary, you can actually see people that don't have much of anything. Like, we can certainly critique, like, global missions and and certain things, but... To go to places where people are struggling with even some of the basics of life, of food, water, shelter. And you can go to some of these places and find people that are filled with such tremendous joy in the midst of their circumstances. Like, to just go to these places and see people worship in full joy, it's, it's challenging. Because these people have tapped into something that becomes such a, a, a struggle for many of us. If we were to even put a definition of joy there, based upon, I think, some of the things we've unpacked at this point, that joy is this constant state of deep satisfaction found in God. There's something about the sort of satisfying nature of saying, yes, my, my deepest longing, the deepest things inside of my heart, inside of my soul, are, are met in Jesus. And, and I'm satisfied in those things. I may not be happy. Circumstances may be all over the map right now. But my heart is satisfied. But how do I stay in this constant state of deep satisfaction? I think it's where the gift thing starts coming in quite a bit. That's something we have to produce and manufacture internally. Because when Jesus died for us, he, he cleanses us. That's one of the things that is defined. We, we become this sort of new temple walking around on earth. And so the, the Spirit of God comes into us. Like we, we all have the Spirit of God. And when we have that, the fruit of the Spirit, one of those things is joy. Like even one of the letters of, that, that I quoted earlier, it said joy from the Holy Spirit. It's something that is given to us. It's not who you're with or how you're going to spend the holidays. or anything. Like those things can help produce happiness, sure. But never an internal joy that can't be robbed, taken away. It can't betray us. It can't divorce us. It can't stab us in the back. It cannot get cancer. It cannot get tumors. It cannot get sick and die on us. My happiness can rise and fall on a lot of those kind of things. But our joy won't. Our joy can't. Because it's not internal of us. It's given to us. Not in what I have or don't have. It's a gift of the Spirit. It's different than the world's definition of happiness. It's a biblical picture of true joy. And this was such a crucial thing for Jesus, too. Like, once again, the artwork just betrays some of the the, the things that Jesus even seems to speak about. 
The Gospel of John, Jesus kind of gives us a, a bit of a, or John, as a, as a gospel writer, gives us these sort of like multi-chapter sort of final words of, of Jesus towards his disciples. And in every one of those chapters, take John 15, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 16, 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. <laughs> John 17, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. These are parting words from Jesus. He says, here's what I want for you. I want full joy for you, my disciples. My joy is complete in you. And it comes from him, John 15. It says that my joy may be in you. A gift, not in the stuff of life, not in the circumstances of life, but my presence, my joy in you, a gift to be received. And hear me, it's less about sort of moments of joy. And I think what Jesus is praying for is that we become joyful people, not just people who experience joyful moments. Those are very different. That when you're stuck in traffic, when you're on email 437 for the day, when you're in the midst of a hard conversation or relational strife, what does it mean to be a joyful person in those moments? And imagine what that might look like amidst the trials of existence, to be the people that navigate the rough terrain with a resilient spirit, where our countenance isn't always defined by sort of fleeting happiness or external circumstances, but this unshakable connection to Jesus. When life has storms, yet we're not drowning, but are anchored. As the writer of Hebrews would say, we'll be anchored to Christ in the joy of the Holy Spirit. The joy is more than an ornament on the tree of life, but a constant state of satisfaction. Where we can ride from prison and declare, I'm greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. And it's not necessarily exuberistic, exuberant, exuberistic, exuberant or outwardly optimistic, but rather an embodiment of just anchored faith, a profound peace that surpasses circumstance, all circumstances, a resilient hope grounded in Christ, demonstrating a steady and unwavering demeanor amidst life's challenges. That's a picture of a people of hope or a people of joy. And the beauty of all this is that it's really not rocket science. It feels fleeting, but it's not complicated either. I think one of the first steps to this um, is realize that this is actually a discipline. Uh, Richard Foster, uh, in his one real famous book around some of the disciplines of the faith, says, uh, talks about the spiritual of, of, of celebration. Because guess what? You are commanded <laughs> to be joyful. You know that? I mean, there's other things we're commanded to do that we just don't do, that we really should. Like, we're commanded to rest, which is great. God's like, hey, you're not enough, and I made you that way, so take a break. Okay, it's amazing. But we're also commanded to rejoice. Paul Rice said, he says rejoice. It's a command. It's a command in the verb. And he, again, I say, rejoice. I'm commanding you as a people to rejoice, to celebrate. 
Foster is talking about this. He says, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is the act of the will. This is why celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our head. It is a result of consciously chosen way of thinking and living. Because hear me, we don't have a lot of control necessarily over emotions. Emotions stir up in us. And if you have control over them, amazing. Like if you're like, I'm sad today, flip the switch, I'm good now. It's amazing. I don't, I don't know anybody that functions that way. If you've heard the podcast, send it to me. But, but we do, I think, have some control over our thought life, what we set our attention on, what real estate we, we give mental real estate to, what things we give mental real estate to in our minds. And feelings often, not always, but often follow thinking. Like, this is an easy experiment. If, if you were to think about maybe some, how horrible your boss is or some injustice that you see in corporate America or some slight that someone has just said to you in the last few months and, and just, just made you, like, what am I stirring up in you right now? Probably some anger, right? As you think about those things, it starts instilling anger. If you start thinking about the dystopian AI of the future and it taking over and building robots and attacking us or the decreased availability of food and land and all these sort of things and, and like the world just globe just changing and all, all the time, that, that might start producing if we start thinking about those things, anxiety in our hearts. If you were to think about God and how good he is, how the center of the universe, there's a source who's pure love and pure joy and pure peace. And you start thinking about all the things that are good and beautiful that he calls good and beautiful and true in the universe that you call home. What do you begin to feel? And I hope it's things like joy and peace in those things. Because often our, our feelings do follow our thinking. As we think about those things, it, it starts stirring our emotions. And we can't just will joy, but we can curate a thought life that joy might be a byproduct of. And I think Paul makes that statement. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then he keeps going. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, uh, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Fill your mind. Meditate on those things. So how do we set our mind on those things? What does that look like to actually set our mind? I think Paul actually gives us kind of three practical takeaways. First, we surrender the illusion of control. In every situation, no matter what it is, if things are going really well, things are going really harsh, if, if things are difficult, if we're anxious about things, if we're glad about things, whatever it may be, we give it over. We, we take whatever we're doing this and we start doing this. We surrender an illusion that we really have control of outcomes and we release outcomes to God. What happens, happens. And not in sort of a name it, claim it, or some super passive way. It's not assuming that everything that's going to be turned out is going to work for good all the time and every situation is going to be perfect. It's something deeper. That no matter what happens to me, if what I fear happens or doesn't happen, either way, I'm okay. Because I have 
life with God. And it doesn't mean you don't grieve or lament or process the things that happen to you. It just means that you release the end results. We do our part in prayer, but we surrender. You can't control life. You can't control people. When you think you can't control people, it causes either manipulation or anger, and it's just something we can't do. And so the invitation is to take everything to God. And the second is to give thanks. This is in every situation with thanksgiving. That we become a people that work gratitude into every fiber of our being. We thank God for everything. Yes, the massive winds, the wonderful meal, whatever it may be, but also the difficult moments and circumstances. We're able to see. It's like the, the famous story of Corrie Ten Boom, where she's in prison. She's able to see the fleas and saw even the good in, in these, these bugs that had infested them because there was a, an outcome that, that came. And she's able to see almost something to be thankful for, even in the suffering. And the third is to focus your attention to all that is good in the world. Our mind is this tricky thing where what we tend to do is, so say you had a day where like nine really good things happened to you and then one really bad thing happened to you. What do we tend to actually think about? Is often that, that one really bad thing. Maybe something, I mean, this is my kids through and through, right? We'll have an amazing day, like all morning, through the afternoon, maybe late afternoon, one bad thing happened. And then suddenly my kids would be like, this is the worst day ever. I'm like, 80% of this day was amazing. You just had this one bad moment. That's what we do. Same with words. Like We went through performance reviews this week and stuff like that. It's always tricky. It's like, because I know how our, all of our minds works. And it's like, here are the nine things you killed this year. Here's the one thing that you really struggled with. And I just know, it's like, oh, yeah, there's that. And it's the thing that sticks with us. We, we, we focus on it because our minds are, are problematic. And the invitation from Paul, the sort of command from Paul, is that we would fill our minds with whatever's true and honorable and just and pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, ex- whatever's excellent, whatever's worthy of praise. That's the invitation. And it's hard in the culture we live in. N.T. Wright, uh, speaking about this, he says, the command in verse 8 to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habit of mind instilled by the modern world. Read the newspapers, so it's a little dated, so look at your phone, uh, read the online news, whatever the name is. Their stock and trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. Is there a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the creator if you feed your mind only on the place in the world where humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and celebrate? So how do we set our mind on God? We surrender the illusion of control. We cultivate thankfulness. And we focus our attention on all that is good and true. And some of that is meditating on something we definitely know to be good and true, knowing this. Some of it's learning to see the world a little differently, to, to look for the things to be, to have gratitude in, in the things of the world. 
Some of it's community and the way that community sometimes can, can tell us what is true in the midst of sometimes believing lies, what is good, what is honorable. It's in prayer. It's in all, all the different disciplines that God has given us, I think, to cultivate these things. And then lastly, I think it invites us as a people into something greater. Like, what if joy took over a community? Like, what if we were really the people of joy? And, and I, I struggle sometimes to, like, see that in church world of going, yeah, they're just joyful collection of people. I, I know of a church that made it even, like, their focus for the years. Like, we're going to be joy. And there's something to that. And, and I'm not sure most of our churches have that reputation. But did you know, like, celebration is part of the glory of God? Like, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of Jesus' first miracles, John, John's recording of the first miracle of Jesus, and he even says, this is the first sign, is that he came to this wedding. The wedding ran out of the wine that they had. It wasn't great wines. Tremendous shame on the wedding host in this moment. They had multi-day festivals. And what does Jesus do in that moment? Creates, like, the best wine. Enough that the party host is like, this is the greatest stuff. Why, why have we been holding out? And, and Jesus brings us to this wedding. And then John says this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory at this wedding celebration. And there's something to that of the kind of joy I think Jesus was bringing into the world. And I don't know about you, but joy, I think, is this infectious thing. Have you ever hung around people that are like really, really joyful? And I don't just mean like happy-go-lucky. I mean people that are just deeply satisfied in their souls, and it shows. Like I've, I've been reading just the last few months a little more like Christian authors and stuff like that that, that probably fit that mold a little more. Their, their disposition is just like, you know what? Yes, like life has its own troubles, but what does it look like to just be joy in the midst of life? And it's just been different. It's just been a different world to read through, and it's attractive. And I wonder how much different our community would look if that was like a central characteristic to be the people filled with the joy of Christ. And I'm not sure all the ways that that would look different, but I think it would be a tremendous thing. Just a few weeks ago, um, I'll finish with this. Uh, I was at the Hope Heals retreat where my wife works, and Brad Montague was one of the speakers. And if you don't know who he is, he's the guy who came up with a kid president amongst many other things he's come up with. But if you've ever seen Kid President, it's a YouTube channel with this little kid who talks about all the stuff going on in the world and just like kid ideas that'll make the world better and stuff like that. It's, it's wonderful. It's really enjoyable to watch. It's very sweet. And Brad's this personality. He's just infectiously joyful. Like just listening to him talk. There's just tremendous joy. And some of it is fully silly. He's definitely that personality too. And, but he also, in that silliness, points out like, all the ways we try to control things, and it's all an illusion. And he just like breaks down the barriers of people feeling like, well, we can't do that, or we can't do that, or anything along those lines. And, and he points to things to be thankful for. Like he's mailing corn dogs in the mail to people and stuff. It's all silly, but, but in it, in creating this like thankfulness in people and helping to point towards things that are good and honorable and commendable. And, and when he spoke, I don't know if there was anybody in that room who didn't walk away going, man, I'd love to hang out with that guy for a little while. Like, that just seems like fun. Like, he just seems joyful. Like, he's, there's something about him. 
Imagine a whole community taken over by that. And like I said, I don't mean just like happy-go-lucky all the time. But, but something where the world looks on and goes, those people just all seem really joyful in the midst of circumstances. And things aren't going right in half those people's lives, but man, they just seem joyful. They just seem satisfied no matter what happens to them. And I think that joy would be infectious. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could stand countercultural, and I would say that's one of the big ones right now. Like, if we want to be a light in a dark place, maybe we become just a church where, man, joy just seems to be a de- definer of who we are. Well, I'm not sure all what that entails or looks like. And, and as I said, I'm not expecting it to be like sedated, smiley face. But what does it look like to, to really just have this deep satisfaction in who God is, what he's done, and able to just live a life that's full of gratefulness. We just think on the things that are true and good and right. And, and we, we take all of our thoughts captive and just give them to Christ.